We sit in the Congress in our beautiful rooms, beautiful studio over here, and we do not know what war is about. I met with the mothers of the young men who lost their lives in that war, met with the wives, met with the kids. I met with the soldiers who came back without arms and legs who are dealing with PTSD today. War is a horror. And it's time politicians understood that we have got to do everything humanly possible to avoid war. Is Bernie too radical to win the presidency? If you watch cable news at all, you're surely familiar with that line of questioning. Never mind that Bernie has built his candidacy on big ticket policy issues that are, according to consistent polling, each hugely popular with American voters. Even after years of negative advertising, paid for by insurance and pharmaceutical industries, 87% of Democrats and 63% of all Americans support Medicare for All. Most Americans also support canceling medical debt, which is interesting since only Bernie has a plan to do it. And 73% of Democrats and nearly half of Republicans support putting workers on corporate boards. Yet, still, the fear-mongering that asks, will progressivism play in the Midwest, is all too common. Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders says he's a democratic socialist. What do voters think of that? That used to be a really scary word. Is it still? I think that uh, you can't win the White House without the Midwest, and I don't think that you can uh, go too far to the left and still win the Midwest coming from a Midwestern state. I think you need to be able to talk to the industrial Midwest. You need to listen to the people there. Bernie is supposedly too far left to appeal to moderates. He may own the so-called progressive lane of the Democratic Party, but how will he appeal to the general electorate come November? He may have the most committed base in the race, but is that enough to clinch the presidency? Turns out the concerned trolls can relax because Bernie is unique among the candidates in his tremendous crossover appeal. No one does better with independence than Bernie Sanders, including Joe Biden, and no one has raised more money in Obama to Trump districts than Bernie. Bernie does well with voters of color. He's number one with Latino voters, number two with black voters, and he has the least white, most working class campaign in the race. And perhaps most baffling for those afflicted with pundit brain, Bernie has received more donations from people serving in the U.S. military than any other candidate. Just about every time I've attended a Bernie rally, I've run into veterans who see their experience serving our country as completely compatible with Bernie's agenda. It's not actually that confusing if you think about it. Independent streak? Check. Experience with excellent government-run healthcare? Check. Fondness for no-nonsense leaders who wear the same thing every day? Check and check. But all kidding aside, it's not difficult to see why Bernie is popular among veterans. Bernie has been a leader on foreign policy, from his lonely vote against the Iraq war to his Yemen war powers resolution which passed both the House and a Republican Senate before being vetoed by Trump. Bernie has been a clarion voice against our endless wars. He's also been a staunch defender of veterans' rights, saying often that you can judge a country by how it treats those who have served. 
He became the chairman of the Senate Veterans Committee in 2013 and notes that the first bill he ever introduced in Congress called for reimbursing members of the National Guard Reserve for income they lost while deployed. The Veterans Administration runs the largest healthcare system in the country with a $55 billion medical care budget and 288,000 employees. Bernie has worked to strengthen the VA internally, famously passing a veterans bill with John McCain that's so good, Trump won't stop trying to take credit for it. We passed VA Choice so they can see their doctor. And as it turns out, because of their direct experience with quote-unquote government healthcare, veterans are some of the most vocal advocates for Medicare for All. This is Hear the Burn, a podcast about the people, ideas, and policies that drive the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign and the movement to secure a dignified life for everyone living in this country. My name is Brianna Joy Gray, and I'm coming to you from campaign headquarters here in Washington, D.C. This week, I spoke with two veterans about why they support progressive politics. First, I chatted with Kyle Bibby, a Marine veteran who was also an organizer with Common Defense, a grassroots organization founded by veterans who opposed Trump's corrupt agenda of hate. Next, I chatted with Hector Barajas, a Mexican-born U.S. veteran who was deported after his service and who now runs an advocacy group called Banished Veterans for Deported Veterans. Before we get to it, I just want to remind you that if you haven't already, please download the Burn app. Start organizing your friends, sign up to make calls or texts for Bernie, or travel to an early state and knock doors. Note that during last week's debate, Bernie had the best fundraising hour of this entire race. We raised $1.7 million for more than 100,000 small dollar donors in one day alone. So thank you so, so much for supporting this movement. We are so close. We got this with your help. I'm so glad to be joined today by Kyle Bibby, who is a veteran, co-founder of the Black Veterans Project, and an organizer with Common Defense. Thank you for joining us, Kyle. Thank you for having me. So can you tell me a little bit about these organizations, perhaps starting with the Black Veterans Project? Why did you feel a need to start a group particularly dealing with the issues that Black veterans face? So um, a, a friend and I, a friend and I uh, we were both graduates of Columbia uh, Policy School and we started realizing during our journey through the VA post-military that there are a lot of discrepancies that black veterans are facing out in, uh, in the community. We decided that, you know, since nobody was really addressing this and a lot of people don't understand how the military justice system works or even how the VA works, mm. uh, that we should start making a bit of a fuss about it. And we sat down, started brainstorming and determined that we wanted to tell the story of black veterans and preserve their history, as well as build a uh, grassroots black veteran organization that can direct like people power towards institutions and really press the case for a more equitable military. So what are some of the particular needs that you feel like need to be addressed more when, with respect to black veterans? What, what kind of disparities do you see there? So the interesting thing is that pretty much everything that you see civilian side is mimicked in the military. Mm. So just as the civilian justice system is more likely to have harsher penalties, more likely to charge 
black uh, citizens more than than not. Uh, the same thing's happening in the military, mm. but people don't understand that the military justice system is its own system. So when you're talking about criminal justice reform, oftentimes you're not necessarily talking about what's taking place on military bases or with military commanders when they're adjudicating cases within their units. So the outcomes are often the same as the civilian justice system. The same happens with the VA. Now, the Department of Veterans Affairs has a number of different social programs, um, you know, home loans and educational programs. The access to that often is not as it's not reaching black veterans as mm-hmm. much as it's reaching other communities. And part of that is it's tied to a lot of the issues that you see around healthcare access for civilians as well. But we're talking about a community where we're all in the military, right? And we're going to leave the military at some point. So you think that they can brief you on what your, you know, your benefits are going to be. Uh, and that's something that the military deals with in general, just problems getting the information to all veterans, but yeah. particularly black veterans when they go back to their communities. That's so. so interesting because in the other interview that I've done for this episode, it's a veteran who was a, non, a non-citizen. He's a Mexican citizen. Mm. And he similarly said that a lot of veterans who are are an American also think that by serving that they were automatically going to get citizenship, mm-hmm. and there's a lot there's a lot of opacity around the process, yeah. uh, and that people find themselves deported and find themselves in, the, in these bungles for exactly this reason. There just isn't a very good communication system set up mm-hmm. for veterans. So I want to ask you how you came to serve. Mm-hmm. So um, my story is. I'm from New Jersey, mm-hmm. and I lived in Franklin Township growing up just outside of New Brunswick, and we're a short distance from New York, and I remember 9-11 actually having a really big impact on me. I was 15 when it happened, and it was the first time that I was afraid of something that just seemed completely out of my control. So for me, I decided that I wanted to be a part of a solution in some way, and what I reasoned was that joining the military was the best way for me to do that. So... I bargained with my mother. She was like, you're not going to enlist. I want you to be an officer and go to college first. Mm. And she actually, funny story, thought she she was going to have me go to the Naval Academy, apply there, because she didn't think I'd get in. <laughs> and then I ended up getting in. She told me this years later. She's like, oh, I'll have him apply to the Naval Academy. He won't get in. Then he'll go to normal college and he'll forget all about it. <laughs> and then I got into the Academy, which we were both very surprised. And then, you know, four years later, I ended up a Marine officer. So Okay, so where did you serve and for how long? So I was active duty for about five and a half years. I did one and a half years roughly in the reserves. And I was with 1st Marine Regiment out in Southern California. I deployed with the thir- uh, 13th Marine Expeditionary Unit. Um, so that's just essentially a bunch of Marines on a ship doing nothing unless something bad happens. <laughs> it's kind of cool. Uh, it's not as nice as, a, you know, your typical like cruise ship. But, you know, if you're a Marine, you don't have anything to do. You can work out, eat food, you know, play video games. Uh, but then the, my subsequent deployment was um, to Afghanistan. So and what I, was that experience like? Really eye-opening. And honestly, for me, it's it's what changed my worldview a lot and actually made me significantly more progressive and and got me questioning a lot of the things that I had been told about why we were there and and just generally how I guess different communities exist around the world how the US military and our foreign policy affects all of that yeah it all it all started there so uh, tell me tell me more about that because mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people there are certain stereotypes in their minds about what the politics of people in the military are like, mm-hmm. and they might be surprised by the idea that your experience overseas, in particular, made you more progressive. Mm-hmm. So th- there's a couple reasons why I think people assume that people in the military are almost all conservative. Mm-hmm. 
First, they're not. <laughs> Most people in the military are actually more likely to be anti-establishment or anti-authority, which is a bit counterintuitive, right, because they're mm-hmm. in the military. But generally, their politics is such where they generally are more independent-minded. They don't like political parties. Mm-hmm. Um, so they gravitate actually towards candidates like Bernie Sanders for that reason, mm-hmm. right? So the reason I think, though, why particularly conservatives or Republicans are seen as the winners of the military or like dominating the military, it's just history. It traces back to the 90s after the collapse of the Soviet Union. There was a massive cut in military funding that happened during a Democratic president. The culture of the military then was, oh, it's the Democrats' fault. They'll, mm. cut, your, they'll cut your pay. They'll cut your budget. And that just carried over. So a lot of the senior staff uh, NCO, staff non-commissioned officers and senior officers now, they remember that and they have kind of a, you know, maybe a bitter feeling towards some Democrats. And and in general, I think there is maybe a bit of a leaning towards folks who are, particularly during wartime, might be more interested in international endeavors to, quote unquote, spread democracy. Right. Yeah. So but ultimately, you know, most of the people who are joining the military, they're apolitical mm. and it's their experiences in the military that are going to form a lot of their political opinions and the people that are progressive in the military, the folks that are, you know, and, and I mean, Bernie Sanders does really well among veteran donations and, and donors. Mm-hmm. I mean, those folks are they're resonating with that worldview, you know, that yeah. that people deserve human rights and dignity. And some of the ways that you unfortunately learn it are when you're overseas and you see people who don't have it. So so you now organize with Common Defense. You organize mm-hmm. it's an organization that. Uh, organizes progressive veterans, yes. right? And I wonder if your experience being in the military and kind of being in close quarters with people with a really broadly diverse political and personal backgrounds, if that has taught you anything about how to reach out and communicate to people here now who are so ideologically diverse and are kind of increasingly balkanized, increasingly feeling like we're divided up into political buckets that are very difficult to cross. Yeah. Common Defense is a very interesting organization and fun, quite frankly. I, you know, I'm, I'm really lucky to be uh, one of their lead organizers. We always say that, well, not even say, there's evidence that when veterans are doing things like canvassing or mm-hmm. trying to do a one-on-one or just talk with people, generally people are more receptive, you know, they, and, and especially other veterans. I mean, and politics aside, it's, it's oftentimes a bit of a, it bridges a gap that might otherwise be difficult to bridge. Mm-hmm. So we definitely use that to our advantage. And uh, one of the biggest campaigns that we run is actually called the End the Forever War campaign, of which the first signer was Bernie Sanders. And that campaign is generally for me when I'm meeting new veterans and I want to see if they want to get involved, I start there because uh, among veterans, it's almost 70% or higher, roughly, that believe that these wars have gone on too long, that mm-hmm. they haven't uh, really served to make the United States safer, and that oftentimes they ultimately make us less safe. So we can get folks from across the political spectrum with issues like that. And then from there, you know, we talk, again, like uh, about a lot of the different issues that I think Bernie Sanders really talks a lot about, people feeling like wages are just squeezing them, frustrations around health care access particularly for veterans, you know, um, the suicides that veterans deal with. I mean, every single every single service member I know knows somebody, unfortunately, who's either attempted or completely went through with Mm -hmm. a suicide. Uh, For me personally, I know five, you know, so this is all about mental health access, you Mm -hmm. know, and for folks who might not have uh, close access to a local VA 
or or just in general, not even just veterans who deserve good health care, right? You know, I have health care for life, but, you know, my friends and family don't, you know, and, and you know, making sure that that's something that a community can get, mm. it, it's imperative. So, you know, we really push a lot of those issues and oftentimes that resonates with, with veterans across the board. So. I always want to ask people who are actually organizing, who are doing door knocking, to give us some insight into the kinds of conversations they're having. Because so much of the political discourse, especially when you're talking about the mainstream news, is an abstraction. And so, I mean, what kinds of responses do you get when you're going door to door? Yes, being able to connect with people better because you're a veteran and there is an earned respect that that is inherent to that relationship. But then you're talking about progressive issues that haven't always been as front of mind, that are kind of newer to the fore, and who there are, you know, broad swaths of the country that at least according to the mainstream media, you know, find to be kind of radical and too far left. Is that Mm -hmm. something that you've encountered in your experience? And how do you, if so, how do you bridge that? It's interesting um, when people talk about how radical or impractical like some of these, these policies are, because that's not our experience at all. What we've seen is, like, when we talk to people about healthcare access or things like that, most people actually do think that everyone should have access to healthcare and it shouldn't necessarily be about how much money you can put forth. The question becomes, well, how can we pay for it, this and that? And, I mean, that's for the policy wonks to figure out. You know, like, organizers aren't going to sit there and break out the, you know, the charts and the, the, the budget tables. But nonetheless, the, the values are there, that worldview, um, that respect for human rights and dignity is consistent. And when we have these conversations with folks, and, and same with ending the wars, you know, like I said, we can bring in almost any veteran with that. And and also acknowledging that maybe these wars uh, were a mistake from the beginning, right? Yeah. So. From what I've seen, the gap isn't as wide as I think people would have folks believe. And I also think that getting out to people, meeting them where they're at, and, and trying to have a conversation, oftentimes it's, it's a lot better than you know, being talked at, which is kind of what the media does a lot of times. Yeah. You know, they want to tell you what people are thinking, but you know, I, I'm, I'm skeptical, I think, sometimes at, at, at how divided we truly are. Now, I know it hasn't all been a walk in the park now when you're having mm-hmm. these conversations yeah. with people either who you served with or you mm-hmm. encounter in the course of your organizing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, what do you think is the, the biggest obstacle to connecting with someone from the other side of the aisle? And do you have any tips for listeners about how to get past it? I mean, do you have any mm-hmm. truly knock down, drag out? <laughs> I mean, because, uh, you know, I, I follow you on Facebook yeah. and I've seen you have a, a Facebook <laughs> argument or two. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think in general, well, particularly among my Facebook friends, they all know where I stand. But uh, <laughs> I think um, in general, I, there's there's rarely been times where things have been really tough for us. And granted, you know, I will I will certainly check my veteran privilege in the sense that, you know, when we go to meet with folks, veteran or not, oftentimes it's a shame that we, I think, sometimes get all this, you know, reverence because I think everyone should be, everyone should have access to healthcare, right? Wouldn't it be nice if we all had the VA? Right, you know? right. Uh, but, you know, it's still something that I, I think we get when we do meet with people. People aren't going to sit there and necessarily call me a crazy libtard when, <laughs> you know, when I'm like, hey, by the way, I was a Marine infantry officer for several years. And they're like, right. oh, well, okay, we have a, you know, agree to disagree, you know? It's like, right. so um, checking that. But I mean, most of the time, we don't really deal so much with with folks who are tough on us for our worldview. Figuring out what issues I think that there's a lot of common ground, dwelling there, and then just kind of peeking out here and there is generally what we try to focus on when we're dealing with someone who might not be the same ideological spectrum. Yeah, I think that's interesting because 
I find a lot less resistance myself than you would guess based on how I think the media characterizes our campaign and characterizes rather any progressive um, Mm -hmm. movement in this country. And I think it is because it is so policy focused and that the policies that have been chosen are precisely those that are popular. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about Populism. I mean, oftentimes it's a conversation about what Trump is doing with this kind of faux populism and, mm-hmm. you know, injected with nativism and all of the xenophobia, et cetera. But I think there's a really strong argument that the best way to push back against that is by doing exactly what Bernie Sanders is doing, mm-hmm. is by saying, look, there are all of these things like Medicare for all and a $15 more minimum wage mm-hmm. that are overwhelmingly popular, not just among Democrats, but in even among conservatives. And mm-hmm. the, the reason that we haven't been able to have those things isn't because it's a an electoral bombshell mm-hmm. uh, or that it would, you know, there's just not the votes for it, but because the people who represent us aren't actually representing us mm-hmm. and they have other interests that are, are dictating their policy goals. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. who they're taking money from. And mm-hmm. the in, in issue of money in politics resonates really broadly. So it is it is strange. I ask that question, but I, I think I would have a, had a similar answer, mm-hmm. that it's not actually that tough a sell when you're talking about policies as mm-hmm. opposed to, you know, personalities or mm-hmm. some of the other factors that have sometimes driven politicians on both sides of the aisle mm-hmm. that have been kind of front and center in terms of how they've identified and how their pitch has been, you know, mm-hmm. likability, things like that. Yeah. Not to say that I don't think Bernie Sanders is very likable. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I, I definitely agree. I think, um, you know, and, and you also you got to be a little strategic in, in, in your conversations, you know. So when we tell people we're vet organizers, we don't immediately start off with we're progressive vet organizers and we're looking to totally up, up you know, lift yeah. up this full yeah. socialism now. Yeah, like we're not we're not like going that route. But yeah, we have the conversation about values, about outcomes. Imagine a country where people didn't have to struggle to make ends meet, you know, where people who worked full time were getting wages that they could live off of. Who wouldn't like that, right? Yeah. And then then you start asking the questions about, okay, then what policies can we enact? Oh, by the way, there's a guy who's doing this. <laughs> you know, yeah. you kind of work your way there. And and that's how uh, I think y- you gain a lot with folks. But I mean, for us also, a lot of folks are just disengaged. Like I said, I mean, for veteran organizing, there's there's actually a good amount of veteran organizing that happens on the other side. Conservatives go to great lengths to organize veterans. And they're effective at it. And it's something that I think on the left that people have not necessarily invested in as much as they should. Now, Bernie Sanders has, I actually know his um, veteran campaign, uh, I guess, uh, advisor, right? Uh, mm. Dennis White. He's he, And he actually went to the Veterans Organizing Institute, which is a program with Common Defense. So oh, I've done organizing that. work with him. Yeah. And a couple other campaigns, like Liz Warren has one, I think, people to judge. So it's happening slowly, mm-hmm. but you lose every battle you don't show up to. Mm-hmm. And as long as the left isn't, isn't trying to have this conversation and also demonstrate that these policies help you, yeah. you know, like ultimately when you ask a working class veteran, do you want for your wife to have a good living wage? Do you want your kids to have their education paid for? Or do you want maybe an upgrade to your M4? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, nah, my rifle's fine. It'll work, you know, when I really need it. You know, these are reliable. I don't need like billions and billions of dollars necessarily to keep going towards corporations and billionaires who, although might be making the next, you know, advanced piece of equipment, whatever, what people still are concerned most about in the military as well is what's directly in front of them. And that's their families, that's their wages, that's their health care, it's things like that. So. And this is such an interesting point because so for, for so many people, you know, supporting the troops and to 
boiling down to increasing a military budget. Mm-hmm. But a statistic that I recently realized and have been parroting 24-7 because I find it to be so visceral and compelling is that it would cost $81 billion to cancel all medical debt, mm-hmm. which is the same amount that many, many Democrats, including lots in the presidential field, voted to increase Trump's military budget by, mm-hmm. right? So it really does seem to be this priority issue. Mm-hmm. The folks who ask how you're going to pay for it don't ask that when we're talking about increasing Never. the military budget of a person who everybody agrees mm-hmm. is not well-suited to have yeah. their their finger on the on the button and, mm-hmm. and to have the power that he does. At the same time, the questions emerge when we're talking about Medical debt, where 500,000 people in the wealthiest country in the history of the world are going bankrupt every year from medical debt. Do you find that people are kind of stuck on that, on the kind of narrow definition of how to support the military? Is that something that you talk about as you're you're organizing people, how best to support the military? Oh, yeah. I regularly rant about this. (laughs) (laughs) I think there – I don't expect everyone to have a deep down understanding of where exactly every dollar is going – for the military budget. But when you look at discretionary spending, and you know, for, for those who don't know, discretionary spending is essentially the money that's allocated every single year. So when they say that they have a spending bill, most of that is what they're talking about. And it's, I want to say, about a third of the total spending that the federal government does every single year. Uh, half of that is DOD. Mm. The other half of that is everything else. Mm. So Department of Justice, Housing, Health and Human Services, all those other departments that we talk about that are cabinet level agencies, they're being funded with roughly the same amount of money that just goes to the Pentagon, that just goes to DOD. And within that, people think that when you're cutting the military budget or even holding it steady, right, you're talking about holding steady military pay. Military pay is about, I want to, I think it's roughly 150 or 60 billion. Mm. Uh, I mean, that's, it's a lot, but I mean, it's not a lot compared to the whole number. And uh, I think it was since 2016, we're talking over a hundred billion dollars worth of funding increases for the Pentagon in a war that's been going on for 19 years. Mm -hmm. And that money, most of it is not going to the Lance Corporals, the privates, the the petty officers. And it's going towards big contracts. It's going towards Raytheon, you know, it's going towards the general dynamic, all these companies that make billions and billions of dollars off of our capacity for committing war overseas. Ultimately, again, it goes back to what I said before. When I was in Afghanistan, I started questioning, how much is this really making my community safer? And how much is this actually positively impacting the United States? And I'm skeptical, and it's a very high price for us to be very skeptical of that. What kind of things did you see? You know, What kind of things were you experiencing there that, that made you feel that way? There's a broad set of experiences that people have when they're deployed. There's people who are in combat every single day. There are folks who will spend their entire deployment, and it'll be the most boring experience of their life. Mm-hmm. We had a little bit happen during my deployment. Mostly it was um, <clears throat> we had an area that was completely saturated with IEDs, mm-hmm. one of the most heavily IED'd, uh, and that's improvised explosive devices, heavily IED'd areas in Helvin Promise at the time in Garmshire District. Uh, so we spent all day with EOD teams just finding them, <laughs> you know, and I mean, that's, that's, it's a very stressful life. And what you realize is part of the reason why those bombs are there were to get at U.S. service members. And we were there to hopefully try and, you know, take down the Taliban who were there 
you know, we were going after them because of their ties to Osama bin Laden. But Osama bin Laden wasn't even there. He was in Pakistan. And then I was actually in Afghanistan when Osama bin Laden was killed. And you see how this mm. eventually becomes this like, okay, we started with Osama bin Laden in 9-11. And now we actually have a gripe with someone who's completely different to Taliban. And now we're in a district where our presence is causing the entire community to now be more unsafe because mm. there's bombs everywhere there. You know, you start questioning, like, ultimately, what what is this serving in my community and what has it what has this impact been on their community? You know, and the sort of money and wealth we bring and the violence we can bring. You know, when we say that we're going to sit down and we would like for you to open a school for girls and we're armed and there's yeah. um, up armored trucks behind me with 50 cal machine guns. Of course, they're going to be like, sure, we'll start a school. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's not really a. It's not a real negotiation. We're very kindly telling them exactly what they're going to do in their own community. And as much as, you know, I'm a fan of education for everyone, right, that's not diplomacy. It shouldn't be at the end of a rifle, right? And, yeah, we just find ourselves doing a whole bunch of missions that, that ultimately I don't, I don't see that helping central Jersey where I'm from. Yeah. So, Do you think now with foreign policy being more front and center mm-hmm. for, finally in yeah. the course of this election cycle, that has made your – pitch for progressive issues easier or more difficult or has it changed anything at all easier and i am very glad that it has because you know one thing i've been saying for a while now in this in this organizing space is that the reason why like you mentioned that we can't afford some of these things or we're told we can't afford these things is because we're putting all our money into bombs bullets and and band-aids and stuff going overseas rather than us investing in our education here rather than us investing in housing and and thing and healthcare here. So it's a shame. You know, we have communities in the United States that are slowly deteriorating as we destroy communities on the other side of the world. No one is benefiting. Yeah. The only people who benefit unfortunately are the people who make money off this, the corporations that that sell the weapons. Yeah. You know, there was I remember I was uh, with a couple of my marine buddies a while back and we saw a video of a US made tow missile being launched at a US made up armored Humvee in Syria. Mm. And we joked, but we were very frustrated because we're like, you know, I wonder if there's a defense contractor popping a bottle right now because they've managed to arm both sides of a conflict. Yeah. That's how much our influence and our weaponry is is impacting the world. And that tow missile costs you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, right? What could that do to a classroom? Yeah. You know? So how can people, if they want to know more about Common Defense or the Black Veterans Organization, how can they get in touch with you and participate if they'd like? Common Defense, best way to get involved is you can stop by our website, commondefense.us. If you are a veteran yourself and you're interested in getting involved, just text VETERAN to 52886 and we'll have an organizer get in contact with you. If you're interested in the Black Veterans Project, you can just stop by our website, blackveteransproject.org. And you could sign up for our email list. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been really great. Thank you. But I believe from the bottom of my heart, Madam President, that if we go to war, if we spend trillions of dollars on that war, that when our men and women come home from war, some wounded in body, some wounded in spirit, I don't want to hear people telling me it's too expensive to take care of those wounded veterans. I don't accept that. If you think it's too expensive to take care of veterans, don't send them to war. I'm so glad to be joined today by Hector Barajas, 
for this episode that we've been wanting to do for a really long time about veterans. And your story, Hector, is really fascinating and one that I don't think many people are aware of in terms of what what you've gone through. So, Hector, you are a person who has served in our armed forces, but who was also deported. Can you walk me through your journey? Basically, um, yeah, I served in the armed forces at one point for almost six years. Unfortunately, while I was in the military, uh, I didn't process my citizenship for various reasons, uh, failure on my part, but also, I, I believe, a failure on my command. I served in the U.S. military with a green card. I was a legal resident, came to the United States at the age of seven years old, grew up in Compton, California, grew up like any other American kid. Uh, I believe, you know, we did uh, back then we did the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, we saluted the flag, watched the G.I. Joes and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, listen to music that, you know, pretty much I think we all have a connection with. And even though uh, di- even though we grew up in different communities, like, you know, I grew up in Compton was predominantly African-American, Hispanic there's still certain things that we can all kind of relate to, like, I don't know, like Christmas watching Frosty the Snowman, or, you know, <laughs> stuff like for sure all the kids watched. So there's a lot of things that I that I grew up as an American, you know, and and that was part of the reason why I joined the, the military. Yeah. Unfortunately, when I got out of the military, uh, I ended up getting in trouble. I went to prison. I was involved in a, this, uh, somebody fired a weapon, uh, discharged a firearm, and I'm not very proud of, of talking about that, but it's something that happened, and you know, it, it's unfortunate. Uh, nobody was hurt, but uh, I ended up going to prison. I ended up eventually getting deported, and I snuck back into the country uh, a couple years later. No, actually, like six months later, I snuck back in, and then I got caught again, and, and I finally was deported in 2010. And I just, I had started a family already, so I didn't want to have the risk of just getting pulled over again. And every time I got pulled over, they would impound, impound my car and take it away. That would be like a thousand dollars, and that, that happened probably happened like six or seven times. Mm. And I just didn't want to get go through the whole deportation thing and, and prison and jail. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to try to do it the right way. So I decided to stay in Mexico. And previous to me being deported, I actually worked with other veterans that were also facing deportation. But when I when I got deported, I finally decided to basically tell my story through social media. And, and that opened up the doors to connecting with other people, organizations, turned my apartment into a, a home for veterans. And then... Over the years, it became a resource center where we help the guys out. Uh, legally, we connect with them, attorneys from the ACLU, public counsel. We help them with pardons. We help them with their VA benefits. We connect them with with resources. We do toy drives. We just did our toy drive a couple of days ago. Mm. We uh, help them with sometimes with psychological help through volunteers. And not just, you know, most people think that veterans are, you know, or rather that uh, people that get deported are just Hispanics. But no, we have people deported to all different parts of the world. I recently went to Costa Rica, Haiti, Dominican Republic. Veterans are deported to 50-something countries. I have a database of about 500 men and women, but I really think it's thousands. Mm. Uh, and uh, you don't get deported for just committing a crime. It could be overstaying your your, 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 your work permit. It could be uh, not renewing your green card. I have a Vietnam vet that, that's 78 years old right now that was deported because he didn't renew his green card and mm. never committed a crime. He just never renewed his green card when it came time to, and he's uh, in the process of citizenship at the moment. But it, I mean, that's just a small snippet of my life. It's been, right. <laughs> it's been hell and back, to be honest with you. Let's get into some of that. I mean, one of the things I was reading was that for a lot of veterans, there's an uh, assumption or a belief that serving in and of itself 
confers citizenship status on you. And it's that the process itself is kind of confusing because the citizenship oath and the oath you take before you serve are actually kind of similar. Was that the case Mm -hmm. for you? Um, That that was part of it. But I was told by my recruiter, my mom remembers it clearly. I I don't because I suffered a a jump injury where I can't remember Mm. a lot of things. But my mom remembers yeah, she remembers clearly that that the recruiter said you're going to be a citizen automatically, and and I believe that part. But then when I started, you know, I was in for almost six years. So when I started doing a little, you know, through conversations and stuff, and I eventually realized, wait a minute, I'm not a citizen, <laughs> you know. And I started the process, but I didn't follow through on it. So so there's there's a lack of education. Uh, yes, there's a process, but if you have, let's say, uh, during any given time, you could have uh, thirty thousand, sixty thousand, whatever, you know. During World War II, we had over two hundred thousand immigrants that that served during uh, during World War uh, World War Two. Mm. So it could be it could be all these veteran, all these uh, active duty people are not being followed by one particular program or system that tells them at some point, hey, this is the form, this is what you need to do, this is the process. So you could have an assumption, you could have maybe a, a recruiter that lied to you, or you could have a chain of command that really doesn't tell you, hey, you need to do this. And, and sometimes there are good chain of commands because I've heard people tell me, my my first sergeant, and I've heard people say during basic training, but that was back in 2009. So there's been different things in place throughout uh, the military's history, but there's never been an actual program that followed every single person. And that's what we want to change so that every person at some point knows is sat down, whether it's be two hours a day, and that you're educated because uh, people say, well, we're not there to hold your hand. Yes, we do hold your hand. We show you, we hold your hand on how to fire a, a, a weapon. So why not hold your hand to sit you down and say, hey, this is what you need to do. And we do that. We, we actually, when I was in the 82nd, if we were on that, eight, within 18 hours, you're going to be deployed anywhere around the world. We made sure that your immunizations were up, up to date, that your power of attorney, that your will was in place. Why not make sure that before these guys go off into a war, that they're made citizens? Because what happens sometimes is, if they die in, in, in combat, they're given posthumous citizenship. So why give it to me when mm, I'm dead? That's I mean, interesting. There's no relevancy. It can't help me out. My spouse may still be deported. Yeah, the contrast between the amount of structure and how cl- how much clarity there is in the military with respect to other kinds of things as com- as compared to um, the path to your immigration status is kind of glaring. And I was surprised to read about how you have as a veteran a right to uh, VA care, but there, until your advocacy, it hadn't been a lot of, you know, real accommodation for people who had been deported, who despite being deported, still have the right to access medical care. Can you tell me a little bit about what that what that uh, work has been like? Sure. So basically what happens is because we're veterans and if you have honorable discharge, you you technically are supposed to have, that doesn't get taken away from you. So we've, we've been able to figure out ways of Getting them their check, their their dis their disability rating, get them to get that initial exam. But once they're deported, they don't have the complete access to all the VA benefits. And then also for the ones that don't get a rating or don't get a disability, I'm at forty percent right now. Besides my check, these other guys that don't have a disability rating, hundreds, not thousands, they don't have direct access to what they should have. It's there because there's no law saying you don't have you. You don't get it taken away from you. You just don't have access to it. So, you know, these are hundreds, if not thousands of people that that are all over the world that don't have access to that basic health care. And depending on what country you're living in, it, it can be very difficult for basic health care. Like in Mexico, it's, it's you know, it takes months sometimes to get seen for, for, for certain things. And, and 
it, it's just there's it's very bureaucratic you know yeah. there are things that are we just had a guy that passed away because he didn't have a life-saving heart surgery hmm. which it was available in mexico but you had to have pay for it because the regular you know uh, hospitals don't offer it to you so he ended up passing away because he didn't have access to that surgery and when he was brought back to the united states they well, actually his his uh when, when they're taken back to the united states they're given a burial a military uh, funeral and they're their family's there, and if there's a mother, they're, they're giving an American flag, and they say, thank you for your service. I'm like, wait a minute. You're thanking them for the service, but yet you deport them, and, and uh, it just doesn't make doesn't make sense. I, I, it is the law, you know, if you break the law, but I think it's 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 wrong. You know, we've, in the United States, we've had many things. That, you know, African-Americans couldn't vote at one point. Uh, women couldn't vote. We've had slavery. There's been a lot of things in this country that, that have been done wrong, but we've changed them, and there's still things we need to change, and this is one of them. Yeah, what seems particularly craven is this idea that, you know, you've put your literal life on the line and that the U.S. government has relied on immigrants to fight in wars for a very long time. Historically, I, I was reading that in the 1840s, half of our military was comprised of immigrants and that through today, significant uh, portions of it are comprised of people from particularly Jamaica and Mexico and the Philippines. And mm-hmm. knowing that's the case and knowing that you're able to rely on people who many of whom are hoping through the process to become citizens to kind of knowingly create a system that makes that process opaque or difficult to, to navigate and then sets them up to be in these, these situations where they're not able to get some of the other benefits of being a veteran. It just seems really, really dark. Yeah, it's, it's really vague. it's kind of vague. And, and like I said, if you don't have a good. I wouldn't even say good. It's just it's just edu- edu- educated people that are educated that know that this is the process, uh, because you know sometimes we're we're ignorant as of what the process is, and same thing same thing with our chain of command. Uh, but yeah, we're hoping to change that, and uh, we've been successful in getting some people back. But we really need need to change this. Uh, actually, most people don't don't know this, but by law, every immigrant undocumented that lives in the United States. By law, they have to sign up for selective service, and I'm sure that not everybody does that. But mm. that's the law; that's the requirement. And most people don't know this. They, you know that if they live in this country, and if there's a war, there's a draft, they're going to be taken. I've had many Vietnam vets that are deported; mm. they didn't even know English, and they still were sent to, to, sent off to Vietnam. So, if we were to go to war with Russia tomorrow or Iran, mm-hmm. all these undocumented people that are males that are of fighting age, they're going to be taken and, and and sent to a war that that you know they probably have no business doing other or they don't uh, they don't even they, they they hold no allegiance to this country but oddly enough i found out that many of them will still go and fight for this country you know and we, we, we've seen it yeah that's i i didn't realize that actually it really begs the question given of course what's going on right now with iran and and also with the 2020 race with different candidates being looked at really closely right now to see how their approach in the course of this crisis perhaps as an indication of how they would fare as president of the United States. I'm curious um, how you perceive Bernie in this context and what made you um, want to support him. What happened uh, back in 2016 elections, right? That was 2016? Yeah, it feels, feels a million years ago, uh, but yes. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that I, I ended up connecting with different people and uh, Cesar Vargas uh, was working with Bernie Sanders at that time. And uh, he told me that Bernie Sanders was going to be at the... Uh, in Nogales border and I actually literally jumped on on the bus and uh, to drive a couple hundred miles without knowing that I was going to meet him or not. And I didn't get to meet him. I saw him from far away. But uh, eventually, Christian Ramirez connected me with him and Caesar as well uh, over here in uh, 
Friendship Park. And he didn't know I was going to be there, but they told me he's going to be at Friendship Park and we're waiting on events. And uh, we ended up meeting him. But prior to that, we had communicated and uh, he actually introduced uh, his immigration platform. And part of his immigration platform was to bring home deported veterans and, and, and also to work better with our immigrant community. So that it's been a, it's a very important, important thing in my life and uh, I, something I strongly believe in. And nobody, there are a couple of Democrats talking about it, but I don't know if they put it in their immigration platform, but I really, that that's what really drove me to, to, to supporting Bernie Sanders. And, and I'm barely learning how politics works and learning because I'm barely going to vote for the, uh, the, fir- in the, the first, for the first time in 2020. So I'm learning how this all works, uh, voting and, uh, to start learning what your candidates or what the candidates are about, so I'm 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 barely in the process, but that's what 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 gets me, and that's what's important for me for me right now at the moment, for me and the people that I work with. So that's why I'm supportive. If there was something I didn't like, I don't even care if it's a Democrat or Republican. Really, to be honest with you, I just want to make sure that the candidate is is right for me, right? And yeah. uh, that's what I see in Bernie Sanders, and, and it's uh, it's important for me, uh, and that's why I'm I'm that's that's why I'm uh, going to vote for him in 2020 for. You know, and I'm excited. You know, this is there are people that, that don't have this opportunity that would like to. And there are people in this country that that have this opportunity and they don't go out and vote. So it's very important for us to vote because we complain about our communities and what's going on in the government. Uh, but we don't go out and vote and we need to exercise that that power, you know. Mm-hmm. And But that's what drove me to him. And, and then, you know, one of the things that that really struck with me is when I met Bernie, he didn't ask me because politicians they're they're you know they're they're the first thing they're gonna ask is well what did you do (laughs) and i've had that happen when especially when i'm skyping or whatever Mm. so he didn't ask me like what did you do to get here obviously there was a reason right and he didn't ask me he just said thank you for your service and we would like you on this side of the border though like wow that's amazing obviously you know you do want to know why you know what happened but that that was that was pretty cool you know and and uh i'm excited you know and, and we'll see what happens so, so what is your your immigration status right now? You're you're skyping from Tijuana. Yes, I'm actually in Tijuana right now. I continue to do my work. It's been almost two years, and I had committed for a year to continue this work. But I just don't. I want to make sure that I have a good platform, a good a good uh, you know that I leave everything in place so that if I'm here or not, that that this work continues. And uh, because it's important for me, it's you know I could be working right now, making uh, some decent money and going to school, but I wanted to make sure that that I make sure that my men are and women are taken care of because uh, it's very important. It's, it really is. It's 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 uh, take your time. <clears throat> yeah. Hector, it's, it's it's deeply meaningful. It's deeply meaningful. Please take your time. It's very important for me, the work that I do. And there's been times when, you know, if it wasn't for the support of uh, my parents and people, I wouldn't be here. Yeah. And I have people that have lost their lives or that, that depend on um, that we change these laws. <clears throat> And it's literally, it's literally a, a matter of life or death for some people, you know, that yeah. that they have the support system that whether it's veteran, you know, like even our veterans, that you know, the ones that are on the streets, the, the VA system, you know, I've, we've heard many times where people taking their lives in, in, in the parking lots and people that are homeless struggling, you know, so, so it's not just about me, but there's 
a lot of things that need to change in this country. And it's a matter of life and death for, uh, situation for some people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there are a lot of, a lot of pundits who kind of treat politics like a game and people like you and, you know, we don't end up on TV so often and the issues that are truly life and death are kind of dismissed as the differences between the candidates don't matter. You know, a candidate who doesn't have a policy to return deported veterans and a candidate who does, it's not just a bullet point on a chart to someone like you. And for all of these policies across the board, sometimes people get mad at us for saying it's life and death. Sometimes people get mad at this campaign for talking about how extraordinary the stakes are with respect to veterans, with respect to the environment, with respect to the homelessness crisis, right? But the reality is they are life and death. And I don't think that we should back away from talking about how serious these issues are. And I really want to thank you for taking the time to come and share your story with us so that more people can realize how much this election matters and commit to vote, um, as as you've said. So so thank you, Hector. Thank you. So, yeah, it's it's important for me. And we actually had a uh, we had a recent sit down with Bernie Sanders where, where he met some of the wives, some of the mothers uh, of, of the veterans that were facing deportation and some also some people that, that are familiar with policy. And, and uh, that was very important for us. That was the first time we've sat with any presidential candidate as well. And, and to actually listen to us about what, what needs to happen and what needs to change. So I'm hoping that it becomes a, a talking point in the in, in the election in the in the elections that are coming up, and I'm sure, you know, this will come up at some point. But yeah, it's a matter of life and death for certain people, like especially with veterans that we have the right to health care, that we have the right support system. It's a matter of life and death for some of my guys and and their families. And uh, hopefully, we we can uh, we can work to become to get a, make this country a better country. Like I've seen it over the, I mean, history, I've seen it where, like I said, we we've come away and we fix things, and it's never going to be perfect. You know, candidates are not perfect. You know. We're human beings. This country is made up of human beings and people that make decisions. But we need to try to have the best person possible as we can elect. Uh, It makes it a better place, you know, for for everyone, you know. Thank you for helping make this country a better place. And thank you for your service. Can you tell anybody um, where to find you, where to find your organization? Sure, they can go to deportedveteransupporthouse.net and then just Google Deported Veterans Support House. There's actually, it's not enough that we've done so many things on media and documentaries and different things, but still most people don't know this this is happening. I I guarantee you not even 10% of the population knows that this is happening. But we need to educate people on on citizenship, that it's not automatic. You need to start the process, especially for all these veterans that are out of the military. We need to educate people that they, there's a lot of immigrants that they think, Permanent resident is permanent. It's not. You can get deported if you break the law. And also, if, if you know, if you want to change this country, then then go out and get your citizenship. And if you want to change this country, go out and vote. It's important. Thank you, Hector. That's it for this week. Once again, here's a reminder to check your local primary rules, which may require you to register or re-register before a certain deadline in order to participate in the upcoming election. Some states, like New York and Pennsylvania, hold closed primaries, which means you must register as a Democrat in order to vote in the Democratic primary. I'm talking to you, independents. So check your local rules and make sure your voice is heard. Take a look at the many ways you can volunteer with the campaign at berniesanders.com slash volunteer, including making calls or texting from the comfort of home. Here the Burn is produced by me, Brianna Joy Gray, Ben Dalton, and Christopher Moore. 
Let us know what you think at HearTheBurn at BernieSanders.com or take to Twitter with the hashtag HearTheBurn. You know I'm there. Hanging out. 24-7. I love to read your feedback on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you get these episodes. So please be sure to rate, review, or like us whenever you get a chance. Till next week.